Howdy listeners, coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Lots to cover with you today, but first, a shout out to Florida and the Southeast. Recover from that hurricane, folks. We're thinking of you. I'm going to go over a little bit on the election, which is now less than 40 days out. We have a terrific lineup of people you can donate to, all sorts of multiple matches where your $50 or whatever, your $10, gets multiplied anywhere from 5 to 13 times. And some key races you really need to be focused on, no matter where you're located. We're going to go over the history of climate change, because, you know, that's the new dagger in the sheath of globalist and progressive control freaks. And it's going to be really interesting for you to see where this all started and what's really behind it, by the way, as admitted in their own words. And then we're going to have the rest of the story on the history of climate change. Then I have a little economic segment for you. All the rose-colored glasses in the world can't change facts and they can't change math. Last week, I brought you the history of inflation. Rather interesting. And the tie-in to interest rates. And what that means to you, your family, your security, and your property. Particularly in the time of a government that is running amok in terms of spending. You know, using your money to buy their votes. Because that's what it's all about, folks. Until we begin to change it. Which hopefully will at least start to occur to some modicum or some degree in this upcoming election. If you get involved. More on that later. And I promised you last week to bring you some unequivocal, irrefutable, and uncontrovertible facts and math as to what's really going on in the economy, which I've been doing now for months. In fact, warning you for years. So today in my economic segment, because you can't escape the facts, no matter how much the progressive Democrats, the Democratic Marxists try and redefine terms and try and play with and manipulate math. Oh, they'd never do that. The Baltic Dry Index. Oh, wait till you hear about this. <laughs> if, if you think we're not in a recession, you'll probably change your mind. And then, of course, we're going to have rat-a-tat-tat. And that's probably going to be a little bit abbreviated today just because we've got so much other stuff to cover. So let's get started, shall we? First of all, our founder's quote. Kind of perfect for today's show. Thomas Paine, the mentor of the founders. The real man smiles in trouble, gathers strength from distress and grows brave by reflection. Hmm, yes. And our ranch story. So this is kind of a story of, you know, seize the moment, carpe diem. Never let an opportunity go to waste. Think ahead and get prepared. So, since we're yearling operators, we sell hay. We don't have to keep hay to feed critters other than the horses and some miscellaneous animals that hang around, some of them destined for the freezer. We don't have to feed hay in the cold winter months. So we sell the hay that we produce, and we're kind of known for the quality of it and for horse hay. We rarely, rarely, because horse hay is way more expensive than cow hay, we rarely sell hay to cow operators. So horse folks, they're quite uh, loving of their animals, and they want only the best for them. And we generally are either sold out or committed for the entire year's hay crop in January, February, usually not later than March. And we usually require a small $10 deposit per bale just to kind of lock people in and know exactly what kind of inventory we're dealing with and what we can sell and what we can keep, etc. Well, there's this gal, very nice gal, who vacillated, who thought about it, who needed to get more information or whatever she needed to do. And the months wore on, March, then April, then May, then June, and finally July. And by that time, 
Even the last little remnants of hay have been spoken for and allocated. And the one thing you don't want to do is sell too much. In other words, disappoint people who are counting on that hay for their critters for the winter. So the hay was sold. I got a call from her this week saying that she had finally made a decision. I mean, this is October, folks, just about October. And that she wanted six bales. They're big, round, 1,300-pound bales. And I regretfully informed her that there was no more hay available. And she had kind of a partial meltdown. She goes, well, I've looked around, and, and hay is way more than it was before, and it's way more than what you had quoted me, and, and it's not really available, and I'm going to have to drive a long distance with fuel prices. And, you know, I commiserated with her, but I reminded her that she had first been contacted or first contacted us in March, and this was September. And the world keeps turning. It doesn't wait for decisions or indecisions. And I think the moral of this rant story for you is self-evident. You know, fortune favors the bold, folks. When something presents itself, sometimes a little bit less thought and a little bit more action saves the day. Let's get started on our historical story, shall we? I'm going to break this into kind of three little parts for you. This climate change nonsense that—that <laughs> that is the new COVID, you know. If you didn't die of COVID, you're going to die of climate change. You're going to incinerate. You're going to starve. You're not going to have any water to drink. Poor you. So you better get in line and you better do what they say or else. And the, the three kind of chunks of this climate change story I'm going to bring you is number one, I want to give you kind of just a, a quick timeline of climate change. Then I'm going to tell you some of the things that were happening behind the scenes here in the U.S. and elsewhere. And finally, I'm going to bring you the rest of the story, which is their own admissions as to what this is really all about. In their own words, yes, the globalists, the Klan. All right, in 1896, Savant Arenas he constructed the first climate model of the influence of atmospheric carbon dioxide, that's CO2. From 1920 to 1925, that was really began the era of large-scale petroleum development. The Texas oil fields, the Persian Gulf oil fields. During the 1930s, there was a guy by the name of Malutin Milankovitch, and he publishes this big treatise, The Mathematical Climatology and the Astronomical Theory of Climate, Climatic Changes. And he was talking about the Earth's ice ages, what precipitated those. In 1957, Roger Revell, V-E-L-L-E, and Hans Suisse, they write that, quote, human beings are now carrying out a large-scale geophysical experiment, unquote. And that was in a paper examining CO2 uptakes by the oceans. In 1960, there's a curve developed by an American climate scientist. His name is David Keeling. We're going to refer back to him a couple times. And it begins to track atmospheric CO2 concentrations. The CO2 concentration, by the way, in 1960 was 315 parts per million, or ppm, parts per million. In 1974, that was the very first evidence of chlorine-type chemicals being involved in, they say, ozone depletion. The Keeling curve, the CO2 concentration thing we just talked about, in 1980 showed 337 parts per million, up from the 315 20 years prior. In 1990, the first Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's the IPCC, remember that name, folks. It notes the pattern of past warming, and then it signals that future warming is likely. This is really when things started to, no pun intended, heat up. 
you know, where people started to realize that they had a lever here, a psychological and emotional lever they could use with people to accomplish other things. In 1992, the United Nations Conference in Rio de Janeiro, that creates the United Nations, right, the IPCC, Framework Convention on Climate Change. And unfortunately, George Bush signed on to it. In 1997, the Kyoto Protocol, you've heard of that. Its intent is to limit greenhouse gas emissions from industrialized companies. At that time, the United States is the largest greenhouse gas emitter, and we don't sign on. Good for us. Then, the Keeling Curve in 2000. It shows that the CO2 concentration has now increased to 367 parts per million from the 337 in 1980. In 2001, the third IPCC report, oh, the United Nations, they have our best welfare at heart, folks. They report that warming resulting from GHG, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, has become very likely. In 2005, the Kyoto Protocol goes into effect, and all the major industrialized countries sign on except the United States. By the way, one of the reasons we didn't sign on is because China was given, like, an extra 20 years to comply. And let's face it, China was no longer a developing nation. In other words, this whole thing was weighted very unequally to the United States, both funding-wise and adhering to these guidelines, which obviously create economic havoc. And in 2006, oh, lo and behold, China, our buddy, they become the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter. Imagine that. By the way, they continue to be so. In 2007, the fourth IPCC report. Oh, the drumbeat's getting faster, isn't it? They just love getting at those reports. They note that the effect of global warming is occurring. And Canada withdraws from the Kyoto Protocol in 2011. Good for Canada. The Keeling Curve comes out again with another report in 2013. Now, greenhouse gases have increased to 400 parts per million. Remember, basically 30 years prior, they were at 337. In 2015, the Paris Accords, the Paris Agreement, which replaced, by the way, the Kyoto Protocol, is adopted by 200 countries, including the United States. Thank you, Mr. Obama. In 2016, that agreement goes into effect with all sorts of leeway to China and other so-called developing nations. Ha. Mm. I wonder what uh, Biden was paid to, to allow that to happen. Oh, it's a shame on me for even mentioning that. In 2021, the sixth IPCC report notes unequivocally that, quote, human activity has brought widespread and rapid changes to the atmosphere, hydrosphere, and biosphere, unquote. Oh, folks, be scared. Be very, very afraid. In 2019, by the way, the Keeling graph shows 412 parts per million. In the meantime, other people are studying the pH of seawater which is rather important to sea life, rather important to the food chain, to the overall natural order. And they're blaming a change in pH from 8.05, slightly acidic, to 7.8 pH, which, by the way, happens to be kind of perfect. In fact, a little high for fish in a pond. I don't know what the difference is between fresh water and salt water. I suppose there is something. But interesting thing to note, and I am familiar with that, and then, of course, Mr. Biden puts us back in the Paris Accords in 2021. Terrific. Now, let me tell you a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes during all this. In 1979, you have the First World Climate Conference. In 1988, 
the UN forms its panel on climate change, right? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. In 1997, the Kyoto Protocol is adopted, and in 1998, the skeptics, the folks who go, wait a second, this is nonsense, this is not the math, and you're looking at the last 30 years rather than the last, you know, 20,000 years, and trying to tell us that this is all, like, happening in a microcosm. It was funded by ExxonMobil. The chief executive of ExxonMobil at that time, Lee Raymond, was convinced that the climate change science was wrong. And they formed a group, Global Climate Science Team, which rushed up at a national plan to challenge what they felt was the flawed science behind, at that time, what was called the global warming stuff, you know, the global warming stuff. And there's a petition that is organized. It's called the Oregon Petition. And basically, that petition was signed by all sorts of scientists and other folks who, quote, no convincing scientific evidence that climate change is man-made, unquote. That'll give you an idea of the petition. At the last count, that petition boasts, folks, 31,400 signatures. Of course, the left and the climate change cult say that many of those people are not qualified to sign it. In 2001, the United States withdraws from the Kyoto Protocol under George Bush. And the objection is that the treaty puts way more burden on the United States for reducing emissions and on other industrialized nations instead of quote-unquote developing ones, you know, like China. Yeah, developing. Developing a system to take all our jobs. But that is yet another story. In 2005, the Kyoto Protocol takes effect, but Russia is no longer on board. So it's basically symbolic. In May of 2006, that Al Gore film, An Inconvenient Truth, he won a Nobel Prize, he got Emmys, you know, the usual stuff. That's released. And at the same time, by the way, he begins to invest in carbon bonding. You know, the carbon bonding exchange. He and George Soros and other of their ilk basically own that now. It's something that trillions of dollars would flow through if all their little plans went into effect. We'll get into that in the rest of the story. In 2006, 41% of Americans, Pew Research, believe that there is solid evidence that the Earth is warming due to human activity. November 17th of 2006, the UN releases another report on climate change, right? Quote, warming of the climate system is unequivocal, as is now evident from observations of increases in global average air and ocean temperatures, widespread melting of snow and ice, and rising global average sea level. There is very high confidence that the global average net effect of human activities since 1750, that was the beginnings of the first industrial revolution, folks, remember that historical story I brought you, has been one of warming. And then there's a global summit on climate change. And this is the whole hockey stick graph scandal, where it was found that the graphs and stuff that climate change proponents were making were, shall we say, manipulated. I'll be kind. In 2010, NASA gets into the act. You know, it's, uh, it's Obama's government. And they report further warming. In fact, 2009, according to NASA, was the warmest decade on climate. But they only go back to 1951 to come up with those numbers. And in 2012, the Democratic Party alters its platform again based on climate change, acknowledging that the science of climate change is absolute. <laughs> There's no argument, folks. There cannot be any argument. And calling the phenomena, quote, one of the biggest threats of this generation, unquote. Climate change is not a hoax. 
More droughts and floods and wildfires are not a joke. And now the rest of the story on climate change history. Because here we are, 2022, and the globalist Davos World Economic Forum, you know, Klaus Schwab, they've proclaimed the necessity of reaching a worldwide goal of net zero carbon by 2050. Hmm. And the UN, their lapdogs, say 2030. And if you're in California, it's 2026. But whatever date it is, it is what was called in the 1970s the New International Economic Order. Look, let me explain this to you. The EU is leading the race to the bottom, folks. They have a bold plan, you know, to be carbon neutral by 2050 and reduce its CO2 emissions by at least 55% by 2030. It's not going too well for them over, over there right now, particularly with the Russian thing, you know. We're going to talk more about that in the rat-a-tat-tat. And Bill Gates, you know, our buddy, the, the vaccine czar, Bill Gates, who knows everything about everything, including uh, meatless meat, quote, as awful as this pandemic is, climate change could be worse. The relatively small decline in emissions this year makes one thing clear. We cannot get to zero emissions simply or even mostly by flying and driving less. Oh, what do they mean? Well, let me tell you what they mean, the rest of the story. When they shifted the words global warming, since, you know, we were having cold years and the glaciers were growing, the ice cap was growing, to climate change, that kind of encompassed everything. It could get hot, it could get cold, it could be rainy, it could be dry, and everything was covered under the little plan. How clever. Let's investigate CO2, their claims on CO2. Look, CO2 is a greenhouse gas that, according to them, goes up in the atmosphere and forms this blanket that warms the earth and, you know, uh, the, the end of mankind is imminent. Unfortunately, chemically speaking, you know, just the elements, you know, like science, CO2 can't soar into the atmosphere, folks, from car exhaust or coal plants or any other man-made origins. Carbon dioxide is not carbon. It's not soot. It's an invisible, odorless gas essential to plant photosynthesis and all life forms on the planet. Imagine that. And the specific gravity of CO2 is 1.5 times greater than air. So that seems to suggest, you know, based on science, that CO2 exhaust gases from vehicles, power plants, whatever, don't rise into the atmosphere 12 miles or more above the Earth to form the feared greenhouse effect. In fact, it can't. It's impossible. Let's go back to 1968. David Rockefeller, you know, what the globalist globalist, they create this movement around this idea that human consumption and population growth, remember those words, were the major world problem. Their first project was to fund a junk study at MIT called Limits to Growth in 1972. And shortly after that, a key organizer of Rockefeller's Zero Growth Agenda of the early 70s was his longtime buddy, a Canadian oil man named Maurice Strong, also a member of the Club of Rome, which was a Rockefeller club that was set up to promulgate all these theories. Strong was named Undersecretary of the United Nations. Oh, gee, there's a linkage here. And Secretary General of the June 1972 Stockholm Earth Day Conference. He's also a trustee, by the way, of the Rockefeller Foundation. Hmm, imagine that. Strong went on to be a key early propagator 
of the scientifically unfounded theory that man-made emissions from transportation vehicles, coal plants, etc., in agriculture, caused this global temperature rise. He's the one who invented the elastic term sustainable development. I've talked to you about that. One of those fuzzy little warm-feeling things that can encompass anything they wanted to encompass in the bat of a gnat's progressive eyelash. Let me give you a quote from Strong. 1972 Earth Day, UN Stockholm Conference. Quote, Isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? Unquote. Oh, well, gee, welcome to the Great Reset, or UN Agenda 2030, or WEF Agenda 2050, or the EU nonsense that's going on, or the crap in this country. Okay, Strong goes and he creates this UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's right, the IPCC. It's a Strong and Rockefeller brainchild. Wow. Let me give you another quote by another guy in bed with Strong and Rockefeller, Dr. Alexander King. By the way, it's in his book, The First Global Revolution. Quote, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. Let me repeat that. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. Unquote. Basically, King admitted that the threat of global warming was a ploy to justify an attack on, quote, humanity itself, unquote. This is the Great Reset, folks. This is the net zero carbon ruse. And we were primed for the pump by COVID. And if you don't think COVID was designed to kill people, those that were susceptible, and you don't think that COVID was designed to bring on the jabs, which are killing people, Listen to the rat-a-tat-tat coming up and see the COVID page. It is, you need to see it. I don't care if you've had the jab, had some of the jabs, have had no jabs. You need to be informed. The COVID page on the rightsideradio.com. Take a look at it. What's going on with all this huge rise in all-cause deaths, huge rise in disabilities. This is by design. They just told you. I just gave it to you here in the rest of the story. These are their words. I want to remind you folks that the election is 40 days away. Actually, less than that. Almost 30 days away. This is a key election. We need to take control of the Senate. We absolutely need to take control of the House. I've explained to you all the reasons why. You don't want to be part of these treaties, the Paris Accord, all this nonsense that's going on. We better control the Senate because that's who votes on treaties, folks. You want to get equality of justice? You want good judges? Guess who appoints them? The Senate, folks. So if you go to ontherightsideradio.com, click on the Take Action page, we have a list of candidates with a link where you can simply press the button and contribute, and you need to contribute. The candidates that we have up there, they include congressional candidates, gubernatorial candidates like Kerry Lake, who rocks in Arizona, tight races like Herschel Walker in Georgia, and Lexalt in Nevada, and others, Tiffany up there in Washington, who actually has a chance of throwing out a 30-year Democratic, progressive, Marxist incumbent. These people need your support. Many of these donations are multiples. You put in 50 or 10 bucks, and you're contributing anywhere from 100 to $500 to the campaign. This is key. They need ad buys going up to the election. They need money to get out the vote. 
please get involved. Get off the couch. Stand up. If, if you, Let me put it this way. You can spend money now or you can spend a hundred times the money later if we don't take control of hopefully both houses and certainly one house. Consider it an investment in all sorts of ways. And make sure you're registered to vote. It's not too late. Get registered. Make sure you get everybody you know down to vote. There's obviously going to be election fraud. We need to overcome it and overwhelm it with sheer numbers of voters. Gear up. Get going. Get off the couch. Go to that Take Action page. Contribute. Also contribute to your local races. Know what's going on with your school board. Know what's going on with your sheriff. These are critical races. Okay, And your county commissioners. And your city council. And at your state level, particularly your state legislatures, you know, rhinos in state legislatures can do more damage since the states are the line of defense against the federal government than almost than Democrats. Because Democrats, you know what they are. The rhinos, like Liz Cheney, conceal themselves. You know, they're chameleons. Get involved, folks. Stand up. Dig into your wallets. Get on the phone. Get on your email. Rally the troops. Get down to the polls and get the troops down to the polls. And by the way, not just locally, but if you know people in other states, particularly states where these races are close, Nevada, Arizona, Washington, Michigan, get people going. And now let's get into a little economic news that I think will refute the nonsense you're being fed by the government. And it's just black and white, folks. Two plus two is four. When companies make less money, in other words, an earning recession... They hire less or they lay off. They cancel plans. They do not expand. There's a guy by the name of Mark Chaikin of Chaikin Analytics and Joel Lippman, another guy, of Altrometry. They're both, and they're both great forecasters. They're warning of a coming earnings recession. In plain English, an earnings recession is when businesses on balance report lower year-over-year revenues for two or more consecutive quarters. It's kind of like GDP, right? GDP declines for two consecutive quarters, and it has, and you're in a recession. This is an earnings recession. It's kind of the corporate world's recession. And when this begins to become apparent, and I think you'll see with the fourth quarter reports, reporting earnings for the third quarter, that makes for mainstream headlines, maybe even a little panic. And it certainly influences people's psychology. And what happens when you influence their psychology and make them more uncertain? Go back to housing. They buy less. They hold on to their money, which, of course, is what the Fed is trying to accomplish. (laughs) They say to tame inflation, but it's really for other reasons. As the Fed raises interest rates to, quote-unquote, fight high inflation, which they caused. Remember, they caused it. It's crushing demand for goods and services in the economy. Declining demand means slower revenue growth for companies. But manufacturing costs are staying high. In fact, they're continuing to increase because of inflation. You take the sum of that, and it hurts earnings. Higher costs, less sales, less profit, etc. Morgan Stanley, Goldman and Goldman Sachs, they're projecting profit margins for corporations will decline in the second half of 2022. Mark Chaikin, he watches something called The Baltic Dry Index. You ever hear of that? Pretty interesting. The index measures the shipping costs for dry goods. You know, iron ore, fertilizer, coal, cement, grains. They're all kind of in the commodities category. The needs, not the wants, folks. The Baltic Dry Index 
has its origins back to the 1700s in a London coffee house, Virginia and Baltic, by the way, as a little historical aside. And right now, that index is showing that shipping costs are plummeting for these commodities. And you go, wow, that's great. That's good for inflation. Well, not quite so fast. The downturn in the Baltic dry index began at the end of May, which is right about the time that the real estate market started to crumble. The index peaked at 3,375 in May, and it, today it is at 1,175. That's a 65% decline in about three months. It is really dramatic. This plunge, this dramatic drop off a cliff, tells us demand is falling. People don't want goods, goods don't get shipped, or the commodities to make goods don't get shipped in this case. People are buying less. In turn, companies are buying less. Maybe that's good for inflation. Maybe it's not. We'll have to wait and see. So these severe slowdowns in orders, which are prompting all this stuff along the chain, means companies are either making or about to make significantly less money. By the way, for those of you with 401ks and stock investments, that's going to hurt stock prices. I'm not your financial wizard here. I'm just the hayseed from Wyoming. But when earnings go down and demand plummets, stock prices usually don't do too good for a while. The last time the Baltic Dry Index behaved this way was 2007 and 2008. We all know what happened then. From October 2007 to January 2008, the index plunged 50%. The S&P 500, by the way, fell about 18%. And then in May of 2008, gee, you know, that seasonal thing, May and May, oh, it's interesting. Things got even worse. The Baltic Dry Index dropped 94%, that's 94% in seven months, through the second half of 2008 and 2009. And the S&P sold off 50%. It finally bottomed in March of 2009. There's an outfit called FactSet. They're a research outfit, non-political, strictly economic. They reported about a week ago that the decline in the earnings estimates of companies that are forecasting earnings for their stock prices and stock market in the first two months of the third quarter, right, that is July and August, was significant. In fact, the drop in their forecasted earnings eclipsed the 5, the 10, the 15, and the 20-year averages. That includes 2007-2008, folks. And companies are still decreasing their estimates for the fourth quarter, another 3.5%. Let me tell you a little sleight of hand, (laughs) of the many sleights of hand the government plays with you when they're playing with numbers to make them try and look better, especially in advance of the midterms. So if you take all the earnings of all the companies, it would indicate up to this time a year ago, that the overall increase in earnings was 6.7% average across the board, all these companies. However, over the last year, of all the 11 major sectors, energy was up a whopping 299% in profits, 47.7 billion in additional profits. If you strip out those energy companies, guess what that does? The S&P 500, the reporting there, would be reporting a year-to-year decline in earnings over the last year of 3.7%. That's a difference, folks, of 10.4% in earnings. That is huge. 
Think about 10.4% in earnings of all these companies in the United States and around the globe and what that means in terms of how many people they can hire, how many people they can pay, who they have to lay off, you name it. Let me give you one indication. Let's just take FedEx. This is kind of interesting. The company basically forecasts for the next quarter revenue below what Wall Street expected. And they took out their full year guidance. In other words, looking forward to a year because they can't equate that with slowing economic demand. That's how rapidly things are happening here. FedEx shares went down 20% that day on the news. And they're now projecting their earnings per share, which is kind of what stock prices are based on, at $3.44 a share compared with the original $5.14 per share. That's a 40% drop, folks, like almost overnight. They're cutting back on their company's air and international units, their FedEx ground, which, by the way, came in $800 million below their forecast, a big number. FedEx Express, their income dropped to $186 million from $660 million in the second quarter of this year. I want you to think about that. By the way, they're blaming their poor results on economic weakness in Asia. Remember, I've been warning you about what's happening over in Asia and the Chinese real estate market, etc. And quote-unquote service challenges in Europe. <laughs> been been warning about what's happening in Europe, too. This is a global phenomena. It's not just the United States. So FedEx is going to reduce Sunday deliveries, less jobs, pause hiring, less jobs, and close 90 retail locations and five corporate office facilities, ha, less jobs. So what I'm trying to tell you here is that even those of you who have incomes, and it's one or two or three, you know, however many jobs you are working, you need to be thinking about what happens if, okay? Take all the information I've given you over the last several weeks and this show, and if you didn't listen to last week's show, please do, because this show kind of builds on it, okay? On the rightsideradio.com and read some of the articles under economy and listen to those videos I've posted. You need to be thinking about the what if. You need to be preparing. You need to be thinking about what you're going to do if this happens or if that happens. And this has to do with your decisions on housing. And this has to do with your decisions on expenditures. And this has to do with your decisions on, gee, am I going to spend $5,000 on a vacation or $1,000 on a vacation or whatever? I mean, you want to get ahead of this snowball, folks. You don't want to be caught in the avalanche. And now let's get into rat-a-tat-tat with the time that we have left, which ain't much. Right now, fentanyl deaths in the United States are up around 300 a day. It's like the leading cause of death other than (laughs) the all-causation deaths from, you know, needles and such. By the way, that's equivalent to like a major plane crash. Now think about how upset Americans would be if a plane was going down every day and killing 300 people. But not a peep from the government or anybody else on 300 fentanyl deaths. Something to think about. Nigeria, huge floods, 100K homeless, 500,000 affected, and right in the middle of a coming famine in Africa. Remember? Remember what our globalist friends said back there in the rest of the story? Humanity itself is the problem, folks. You know, less humanity, less of a problem. With Africa on the verge of a famine, 80%, 
of all the farms and agricultural production land in Nigeria have been wiped out. That's 12,000 farms. This is going to get ugly really fast over there. Keep watching. It will affect the whole world. Then in military news, this is not good. So the Department of Defense, you know, Secretary Austin, uh, Secretary of Dents, all sorts of things are coming to light after FOIA release. It seems that the Air Force and the Army, they went back and forth internally. It was recommended that they not enforce the vaccine mandates until these quote-unquote vaccines were actually approved, that they could not and should not enforce emergency use authorizations. And you know what? The service members who control all this, the brass, we're talking about the Joint Chiefs, and we're talking about the Commander-in-Chief, and we're talking about the Department of Defense, they vetoed that. And you know why? Because, gee, they had already axed a bunch of servicemen, and I'm going to bring you more on this in the next few weeks, and they axed them without any of their retirement benefits, even guys that have been in, you know, 18, 19, 20 years. And they were worried about the legal ramifications. I mean, who cares if servicemen are dying or getting maimed or having adverse effects? Let's worry about the legal consequences. Since we started down the wrong path, we certainly can't change it now. A lot more coming at you from this show on this really treasonous nonsense in uh, future weeks. And then also in the U.S. military, and it all kind of ties into what I just told you, right? The educational texts and materials that they're using, particularly via third-party woke contractors who are teaching at these academies. The Air Force Academy, quote, Diversity and Inclusion Cadet Leadership Program, unquote. Gee, that's great. You know what it teaches them? Oh, you'll love this. Tip of the iceberg. The presentation instructs them to not use certain terms such as terrorist or colorblind or transgender because that ruins inclusivity, you know? Oh, and by the way, they're also, in the Air Force, not supposed to use the words mom and dad anymore. Oh, no, 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 because that that denotes some kind of gender thing. Instead, when you write home to your parents, you should call them dear parent or dear caregiver. I'm not making this up. I wish I was. And the U.S. Army, okay, in March... They said in a presentation to unit commanders, I just love this, who should be preparing for Russia and China, you know, a couple little problems on the horizon out there, like the near horizon. So when a member of their command in the army wants to change their gender, there's a certain way you have to handle that, you know, so you don't hurt anybody's feelings. By the way, Mike Waltz, he's a Republican representative from Florida, and he's terrific. He is grilling Millie up there on Capitol Hill. And he asked Millie about this, one of these things on the reading list, quote, how to be an anti-racist by author Ibram X. Kendi. Oh, you should look him up. He's he's beach. And Millie defended the inclusions. It's unbelievable. Saying, I quote, he wanted to have some situational understanding about the country we are here to defend, unquote. And then he added, think about this, quote, I want to understand white rage and I'm white, unquote. Wow. More on this in the coming weeks because we ne- we really need to raise holy hell and support our service members. I wonder why they have a recruiting problem right now. In California, you know, the, <laughs> the progressive gift that keeps on giving humor, <laughs> kind of. AB 351, this is a bill in the California Assembly. It was introduced by Christina Garcia, obviously a Democrat. And guess what? This allows for the method in which human remains, you know, you tip over and there's a body left, 
naturally decompose over a 30 to 45 day period and then are turned into soil. And listen to this, folks. The human composted soil can then be returned to your family or can be donated to conservation land. You know, <laughs> you know that saying, oh, Uncle Joe is pushing up daisies? Well, it gives it a whole new meaning. Could be right in your backyard. Ah, let's get to California, man. I want to get there before I tip over because I want to be composted. Yes, sir. And then on a more serious note, Ammo Land News, okay? This is uh, kind of a big periodical that talks about ammos and rifles and pistols, etc. Gun shipments, ammo. They have now revealed that UPS and FedEx are cracking down on gun shipments. UPS changes policy surrounding unfinished frames and receivers. You know, the ghost guns that Biden is so upset about because it can't be traced. And... UPS has gone so far as to tell them that if any of these items are in packages, even though this is not law yet, guess what? They're going to destroy the packages. And UPS and FedEx have now told their customers that to qualify for two-day air shipping, which is about one-quarter the cost of overnight shipping, they have to ship at least 50 handguns a day. And if they fall below the required amount of firearms, they could cut them off from two-day shipping and require these companies to use much more expensive next-day air shipping. Guess what? That goes right to the consumer. So less weapons are purchased. Who would even think of that? Hmm? My. By the way, this all came about when the Democratic Senate, uh, remember the keyword Senate, upcoming election, Chris Murphy, oh, he's, he's a peach from Connecticut, Edward Markey, Dick Blumenthal, another peach from Connecticut, and Cory Booker, you know, Spartacus, and Diane Feinstein. So they wrote this letter to all these shippers, right? FedEx, UPS, others. And the letters claim that the signers, these Democratic Marxist senators, were concerned about lax shipping measures and that these lax shipping measures were causing an, quote, epidemic of gun violence. And the letter requested records going back five years. In other words, if you don't comply, we're going to make this like a bureaucratic, expensive nightmare for you. And they wanted to know the shipping company's policies regarding securing firearm shipments, etc., etc., etc. So that's where this all came about, folks. The Democratic Senate that we need to change to a Republican Senate. It also tells you what's going on behind the scenes in terms of an assault on your Second Amendment rights having nothing to do with bills or courts. A little bit of economic news for you. Sales of luxury homes, right? These are people who have money plummeted 28.1% year-over-year as of just a few months ago. This is a Redfin report, by the way. This is the steepest decline since at least 2012 when the firm began collecting data. By the way, this plunge, it even tops the 23.2% decline that occurred at the onset of the pandemic, oh yeah, the pandemic, two years ago, and it outpaced the 19.5% drop in sales of non-luxury homes that occurred over the same kind of comparative time period. And then, of course, we have the blow-up of the Nord 1, Nord 2 pipelines in the Baltic Sea. I'm pretty sure the U.S. did it. Next week, I'll tell you why I think that and why it happened. This is a really big deal. And as usual, we're out of time. Remember, gear up for this election, folks. Look in that mirror. Repeat with your family. Repeat to yourself and repeat with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. 
I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. Read Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Keep the wind at your back till next week.